Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specializing in the history of epidemics and pandemics. In the last series, together with my colleague Hannah Maudsley, we were talking about the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic. 50 million people worldwide died in that pandemic, the equivalent to about 140 million deaths today. Little wonder the Spanish flu is considered a template by pandemic planners for a worst case scenario. But who would have imagined that a little over 100 years later, we would be witnessing another pandemic of comparable magnitude, COVID-19. It sounds like something out of a science fiction film or an episode of Black Mirror. But right now, every day, all over the world, thousands of people are dying from COVID. That illness is caused by a coronavirus. And because it's a new virus, no one has immunity to it. And as yet, there is no vaccine. The result, depending on who you listen to, is a case fatality ratio of about 2%. Now, that may not sound a lot, but it's about the same ratio as the Spanish flu. The difference is that in 1918, as today, everyone had been exposed to some kind of flu in childhood. So when the Spanish flu came along, they could count on a degree of immunity. But no one has any immunity to the new coronavirus, and that can have dramatic consequences. This is nowhere more true than in the United States, which as I speak, has recorded 370,000 cases, more than any other country in the world, and almost 11,000 deaths. To help us make sense of these numbers, and some of the projections as to how many more people might die of COVID, my guest speaker today is Andrew Neumer. Andrew is a medical demographer and professor of public health at University of California, Irvine. Andrew's credentials are impressive. After studying biology at Harvard, he enrolled in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, obtaining an MSc in medical demography in 1996. This was followed in 2006 by a PhD in sociology at Berkeley. He now lives in Irvine, Southern California, which currently has just 1,000 cases. Although, as elsewhere in the US, that's almost certainly an underestimate. Hello, Andrew. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your pod. What I'm hoping you can do for us, Andrew, is talk us through the numbers. What is going on in this pandemic? As, it's, as well as everything else, it seems to me that the public are getting an education in statistics and the mysteries of disease modelling and all the assumptions that underline it. So it, it's like a massive education campaign almost for people in, in your business. You must be in hot demand at the moment. Yeah, I've, uh, I mean, I've never had my phone uh, with so many calls as, as, uh, as lately, but I think we'll all be happier when that goes back to normal. Right. For our British listeners, there's a very well-known figure now, the disease modeller at Imperial College, uh, Neil Ferguson, who has now been given the nickname by the tabloid press Dr. Lockdown because it's his projections that have led to the government panicking and reversing their previous policy of letting the virus spread. And as a result, we're all social distancing like crazy. You know, Neil Ferguson doesn't necessarily deserve uh, to be mocked. You know, here in California, our governor has also instituted a statewide lockdown. I mean, lockdown is what everyone's calling it, both in the UK and, and the USA. It's, it's not exactly the right description of what we're doing. But yes, Great Britain is not the only place where this advice is being heeded. I suppose the difference is, Andrew, that Americans take their, their liberties very much more seriously. One of the first images we saw over here when these measures were announced were Californians flocking to gun stores to buy more guns. Yes, the the, uh, the Second Amendment people, as they're known, whenever there's a crisis, it seems to be good for their business. OK, look, let's get to it. So COVID versus flu. Uh, Trump uh, famously quoted early on in this crisis, COVID-19 is no worse than, quote, a common flu. Is he right? And if not, why not? It's an interesting question. I mean, the, the flu COVID comparisons have been made since day one. And there are what I call wholesome and unwholesome comparisons. And when this first emerged in China, people in the United States were saying, you know, don't worry about this. Flu kills more people. And, you know, you're a hypocrite if, uh, if you're worried about this, but not uh, worried about flu and, and all sorts of what I consider unwholesome comparisons between COVID and flu. And I actually, on Twitter, really pushed back on that. And I said, no, this is something we have to fear. This is an emerging disease that has, you know, enormous potential, even, even if that may fizzle. The downside risk of this is, is enormous. I mean, individually, 
as a, a case, if, if we're unfortunate enough to get COVID, it's, it's not that dissimilar to influenza. That is to say, it's mild for many people. It's uh, serious for some people. It will land some people in the hospital. It will kill some people. It tends to uh, be more severe for older people, but not exclusively. Flu tends to be severe in, in young children and the elderly. And this seems to be severe, not at all in young children, mostly in the elderly, but some at ages 20 to 60. Epidemiologically, at the population level, it's different from flu. So if we compare coronavirus to seasonal flu and then swine flu, how do they stack up? One thing to remember is that we have flu every winter, right? It's the, the, the flu season is every winter. And the flu virus evolves incrementally. So this year's flu is a little bit different than last year's flu. It's a little bit different than the, the year before that. And so that's why you're supposed to get your flu jab every um, fall, because the flu virus slowly evolves and the shot is modified every year to compensate for that evolution and so on and so on and so on. But our immune system has seen flu before. I mean, most adults have had flu, you know, once in their life or, or more. And the flu virus evolves, as I said, slowly. So we, we make small tweaks to the vaccine every year, but it changes slowly from year to year to year. And so we, we've seen flu before and we have some cross protection. So that's why, you know, we don't have this panic every, every winter. I've read that the coronavirus is worse than the seasonal flu, but how much worse on average? How would it compare to the Spanish flu? So if you use the R0, what are, what are the numbers and the differences? So it, what's important to understand is the R0 that people have been talking about is it's the number of cases that each case will generate, assuming that the population is all 100% susceptible. So the flu R0 is just above 1, 1.5. I mean, it, it it will vary from place to place and, and virus to virus. And the, we, we think the, the uh, COVID R0 is somewhere around 0.5. Maybe some estimates a little higher, some estimates a little lower. So the spreadiness of COVID, if you want to call, call it that, R0 is really a measure of spreadiness. It's a combination of how spready is the virus and how, and how closely packed are the, is the human population. So measles you know, famously has the highest R0 of any virus. It's, 15 to 19, depending on whose estimates you, you, you look at. And because measles is super spready, measles is, is uh, forms a fine mist and can spread in a, in a room. It, it's not this droplet that you've been hearing so much about. So measles is super spready, but the, the, uh, the R naught of, of COVID is about double that of seasonal flu. So it spreads sort of twice as fast, if you will, or twice as much. And the, the key thing here that will, will kind of be a, a motif, I think, in, in, in our conversation this, this hour is that we're all susceptible to COVID, except for those of us who've already just gotten it by now and, and recovered. And, and we're not all susceptible to seasonal flu. So people have been introduced to this term excess deaths or excess, excess respiratory deaths. And I don't imagine, you know, most, most people who don't work in your field of disease modelling, they don't really know what that means. I was first introduced to this term really when you know I was studying uh, the you know the history of influenza pandemics and um, I think I'm right in saying that this concept really first emerged in relation to influenza in the 1830s when Robert Graves who was a physician at the Meath Hospital in Dublin compared burials at Prospect Cemetery in the suburbs of Dublin and this was in December, March of 1835 to 6. And he compared those burials with the same period during the epidemic of 1836 to 7. And what he found was that during the epidemic period, there'd been three times as many burials or deaths in that cemetery. So he extrapolated those figures to neighbouring churchyards. And he came up with a figure of 4,000 excess deaths for the Dublin area. And he noted that that exceeded deaths from cholera in that period. And he reasoned that those deaths were due to influenza, really, and, and sort of argued that, you know, influenza raised the excess mortality uh, against other background diseases. Why is this concept of excess mortality so important? It's important because um, counting deaths isn't as uh, simple as it looks. So there's all these uh, dashboards, you know, uh, these online tallies of uh, COVID mortality. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we've we're approaching 10,000 deaths in, in the United States. So these are deaths that, you know, where, where the person died of COVID. They typically were in hospital and they had, they 
they passed and the either they had a positive COVID test or the medical staff, for whatever reason, thought, okay, this person was a COVID death. And so the thing is, we're not really going to know until all the numbers are, all the deaths are recorded for the year 2020, what's really going on with mortality. Because, you know, the early in the epidemic, you could have deaths where someone thought, oh, this person must have died of flu because it looks like flu. And I mean, pneumonia is just is just the general term for, you know, a, a, a lung inflammation slash infection. And some hospitals won't write down COVID on the death certificate if there wasn't an accompanying test positive for COVID. So they'll write down like a generic pneumonia. And uh, so it's just, it's kind of a... Uh, a catch-all? Yeah, there's there's an art and a science to, to death recording. And a, a lot of, you know, every everyone has to have a cause of death, but there are more and less specific codes that are used for what killed this person. And so there's pneumonia and then there's pneumonia from COVID. And the pneumonia from COVID is more specific than just saying pneumonia. But in a crisis situation, the, the deaths may just be recorded as pneumonia deaths. And so at the end of the day, you know, we may have a relatively modest number of COVID deaths and we can say, oh, boy, we, we dodged that bullet. But if there are thousands of pneumonia deaths more than usual, then that's very suspicious that those were, in fact, COVID deaths. Right. So what you're saying is when we go back in six months or a year, however long, we're going to be revising these figures, most likely upwards, because there are also exactly there are also lots of deaths in the community uh, which never get to hospital. Right. That's right. And those will also be coded somehow. But we will never know exactly how many people die of COVID. We will never know down to the last person how many people die of COVID, because there will always be this classification mystery. I live in the United States and there were two point, uh, over 2.8 million deaths in, in 2018. Uh, the 2019 numbers haven't been released yet in their final form, but there will probably be 2.9 uh, million some odd deaths in 2019. And, and we would have expected in 2020 about 3 million deaths in the USA. The, uh, the question is, how many will we have in 2020? And if we have 3.3 million deaths in, in 2020 in the USA, you know, that's, that's about 300,000 more deaths than we were expecting. And you know, will all of them be coded as COVID? Maybe, maybe not. Some of them will be coded as pneumonia. That's suspicious. And and so on. Okay, Andrew. So what I want to do now is I want to play devil's advocate. Uh, and what I can be doing is throwing questions at you that come up when I'm having random conversations with people in London and other places when I go into BBC studios. And one of the questions that comes up or that people say is, wouldn't most victims of COVID have died anyway this year of influenza or, or some other condition associated with old age? So the demographers call that phenomenon competing risks. It's tempting that your first reaction to that would be, you know, that these people are just trying to minimize the, the impact, but it's, it's real. And uh, demographers always do a thought experiment where, whereby, you know, if some, if some medical intervention saves someone life, someone's life, then, then they're going to still die, you know, later from some other cause. And conversely, that's something that, uh, causes an, a premature death will be taking that death away from a later death to another cause. So robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to say. So yes. So like someone who dies of COVID now maybe would have died of heart disease in November. And the COVID deaths will be disproportionately people who have comorbid comorbidities. So there's a grain of truth to that line of argument. However, I fully expect excess mortality to be positive in 2020 and perhaps 2021. What do you mean by that? I mean that the excess mortality is, is greater than zero, meaning not every COVID death is, is being borrowed from. I mean, I mean the, the cruel irony is we all die sooner or later. So every, so every COVID death is being borrowed from some later death. Uh, it's just a question of when. Right, exactly. But that, that, that's the key point I want to zero in on. So when people say, well, a lot of elderly people are going to die anyway this year, what that obscures is those deaths might be several months from now, right? They could be several weeks from now, several months from now, or they could be next year. It could be five years from now. I mean, every COVID death is is borrowed against a future death, but they're not all. And we saw this in the Spanish flu, that uh, life expectancy shot up after the Spanish flu went away. And so why was that? Well, because you killed all the unhealthy pe people 
who had t- uh, tuberculosis, for example, back then, which was in Europe and North America was a much more common condition than it is today. And so, you know, they a lot of them perished in 1918. And so they weren't dragging on the life expectancy in the, in the years after that. So life expectancy rebounded and kept going. And we'll probably see a similar phenomenon here. But it's, it's not fair to say, given the volume of deaths that I expect us to experience, that all of these people would have died later this calendar year. Some of them would. Some of them would have died in 2021. Some of them would have died in 2022. Some of them would have had 10 more years to uh, play with their grandkids than, than they're going to get. So 10 more years is, is, uh, is a lot. I mean, no one lives forever, but you know, it's, it, it's not going to be the case, given the magnitude of the effects we're seeing, that it's all just the same people who would die later this year. Okay, well, thank you for that, because I think that's a really important point. And it brings us on to the next stage, because people who ask that question, are we just trying to stop deaths that would happen anyway, is basically, I put this under the heading, you know, is the cure worse than the disease? You know, so people say things like, why are we holding the economy hostage for the sake of a few elderly people? And would it make more sense to go for this, uh, the strategy we've heard, this herd immunity strategy like Sweden? There's an issue of, of surge capacity in hospitals. And uh, so once uh, hospitals get really full, the standard of care for everyone goes down. And so if you just go on sort of business as usual, then you're, you're going to have more COVID transmission in the population. That's clear. And so what that means is you're going to have more cases winding up in, in hospital. That's also clear. And then once you, once you submerge the hospitals in cases, the standard of care for everyone goes down. And not just people with COVID, but s- someone who, you know, is unfortunate enough to have an inflamed appendix or, you know, or, or whatever, you know, going on at that time. And, and the poster child for this effect is, is Italy. The Italians have been forced to triage such that the only people who get respirators are the 65 and younger or 60 and younger. In the, in the most severely impacted Italian and in some cases Spanish hospitals, the very old people are being left for dead, essentially, if, uh, because the hospitals are submerged. And, and I, I mean, I don't think that's, that's anything that we want to repeat in, in the UK or in the USA. So, I mean, I, I just disagree that, you know, that that's a, that just carrying on as usual is, is, uh, is the correct strategy. Can I ask you straight out? I mean, uh, some people might char- characterize that as eude- eugenics by rationing. I, I mean, I just hate to see a situation where where we have to triage, you know, uh, the mechanical ventilators and decide you know, who gets it and who doesn't. We, we know we can keep people uh, alive. You know, we, can, we know we can save lives. I mean, we know we can keep people alive, you know, when they, when they have a respiratory distress. And if it's severe enough, then they need one of these mechanical ventilators and bottled oxygen in many cases as well. But the, the point is that these machines work. And, you know, the, the average age of mortality in Italy, I saw at one point was 81 years. Now, that number have, may have been modified, you know, up or down slightly since, since then. But the point is that's, that's quite old. But the reason why the deaths are so old on average is that, we're, that they're able to save the lives of younger people and they're, they're, the older people aren't getting this care. And so, you know, it, it goes back to, do you want to have you know someone be able to see their grandkids for five more Christmases or or do you want them to die now? And that's a choice we don't have to make if if we social distance and we keep the flow of people into the hospitals at a manageable rate. And if we have more people than can be saved, you know that's a question that has to be um, that the doctors will have to ask themselves because they'll have to choose. Yeah, these are these are tough choices, and um, I think it's very unfair because we don't actually. Nobody actually makes them in a, in a sort of rational thought out way. It's just left to doctors in that moment on the ICU to make that call. So we've heard a lot about this alternative strategy, which um, initially the British government seemed to be going along the track of pursuing a herd immunity strategy. And then they did this U-turn when they, the disease models basically predicted that we were going to see a sh- very sharp rise in cases and deaths that might cause this overwhelming surge that our hospitals, our NHS would not be able to cope with. But could you just really explain what is the herd immunity strategy? What does it mean? And does it make any sense in your opinion? Well, it's it's complicated, actually. And because there's, a, just as there's, there's sort of wholesome and unwholesome comparisons to influenza, there's also wholesome and unwholesome uses of this of phrase herd immunity. I mean, in some sense, every strategy is a herd immunity strategy. Because until 
Um, and even getting a vaccine is a herd immunity strategy. But in, certainly until we have a vaccine, the point is that the only way we're going to get out from this is if everyone gets sooner or later gets sick and recovers and becomes immune. And depending on how spready, we don't actually have to in, include everyone in that group because once there's this threshold of herd immunity, that once you surpass a certain point, a uh, proportion of the population that has been uh, immune, then then the disease really dies out. And, and that's around what seventy percent, or well, it's it's seventy percent if the if the R naught is 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 around three and a third, and it's 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 around sixty percent if the R naught is two point five, and those are approximate. There's a mathematical relationship that herd immunity one minus one divided by R naught, um, and, and so and but that's that's not a like iron law. That's sort of a, an approximation. So yeah, so the higher the R naught, the greater the herd immunity thresholds. But so for this, it'll be somewhere between 60 and 70%. And once, once about 60, 70% of the people are immune, it, you can think of it as a crowded grocery store, or crowded, crowded supermarket or corner shop or whatever. And, you know, if someone coughs and, you know, 60% of the people around him or her are already immune, then the disease isn't going anywhere. And in a, in in a situation where everyone is is susceptible then someone coughs in a crowded shop and the disease is going places because the people around the cough are, can potentially become infected and so you know i was at a grocery store the other day and i was wearing a mask and and everyone like many of the other customers of the store were wearing masks and there was one person who wasn't wearing a mask and it didn't matter because if any of us coughed it we would have just coughed into our own mask and it's a bit like herd immunity that person wasn't protected but it didn't matter because everyone around was protected and it's the same with herd immunity pretend we weren't wearing masks but pretend all the rest of us were now immune we're not going to be spreading it and so the if you flip the if you flip the situation and that that one person who wasn't masking was now sick and he was coughing he he won't make us infected because we're all immune. So it's a bit like the same. It's not, not everyone has to mask and not everyone has to get sick eventually, but there has to be above a certain threshold. Part of the reason why I'm, I'm asking this is, um, you know, in recent weeks in the UK, uh, there was substantial pushback against the strategy the government's pursuing based on the Neil Ferguson's imperial model, right? And we had a rival epidemiologist at Oxford University called Sunitra Gupta, um, come out with this statement from a, a paper, I think it was a pre-print, uh, and what she and her the co-authors were arguing is that the coronavirus could already have been spreading much earlier than we thought, so as early as January in the UK. And therefore, she speculated that already half the UK population could have been infected, so we may already have halfway towards that magical figure of 70%, whatever it is. Uh, and so, you know, this really underlines, raises questions about, you know, are these these extreme lockdown measures really necessary if large part of the population is already immune or has got some buffering? That's a perfect example of, uh, I think, the limits of, of modeling and where you, you start to need data, because there's nothing wrong with that model. I mean, the math is sound. Professor Gupta is, a, if I'm not mistaken, a professor of theoretical epidemiology and there's a, a kind of an aphorism that in, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. So basically what we need is data. What she wrote is possible. I think it's questionable whether it's plausible. We can measure it and we're going to have to measure it. And the, the UK equivalent of the CDC is going to have to do Sera surveys. And, and the Sera surveys are coming online now. That is to say the technology to look for antibodies in people's blood. We're talking about testing, aren't we? We're talking about antibody testing. Yes, antibody testing, though not the type of testing that we've heard so much about in the last eight weeks. That's PCR testing, and that's looking for the virus. That's if someone comes into the um, A&E and has uh, you know, respiratory distress, they can swab the nose and throat and find out if it's being caused by COVID. That's an important type of test, but there's another type of test which tells you if you've survived an infection and you have these antibodies in your blood these antibodies are part of your immune response. This is why you got better. And you got better even if you didn't know you were sick, because that's how the immune system works. It makes these antibodies. These are small proteins, and they persist in your blood for, in some cases, years and years after the infection, in some cases, only weeks after the infection. But in either case, they persist in your blood. And so we can 
take a blood sample, very small amount of blood, and analyze that and find out if Dr. Gupta is right. So Dr. Gupta makes a point that's possible. I, I doubt whether it's plausible, but it's an answerable question, and we need to collect data, not just keep comparing models after models after models. So I, I take your point that really what she was doing in that paper was arguing that we desperately need more antibody tests. We need to see what the serology tells us about how many people might have already been infected. But my understanding was that her estimate was based on an assumption that only one in every 1,000 people who've been infected with the coronavirus in the UK will need to be hospitalised. Is that a fair assumption? Probably too optimistic. I think the death rate is probably close to one in 1,000 in or in that ballpark. Of course, it will vary on pop populations, comorbidities, age structure. The Italian population is very old. There are a lot of senior citizens in Italy because ever since the end of the Second World War, they've had long life expectancy. So all, all these uh, baby boom birth cohorts in Italy have been living long. So there's a lot of elderly people and now they're, you know, a lot of them are dying, sadly. So it's complicated. I think one in 1,000 showing any signs of symptoms is, is too optimistic. But again, that's something that the Sierra surveys can answer. This is an answerable question. We don't need to keep arguing about models. And you said it was an assumption of her model, and that's an important thing. All models have assumptions. The imperial model has assumptions. Her model has assumptions. And, you know, we need to validate those assumptions with data. And if you're in, if you're in week zero of the, of the epidemic, you know, maybe a model is the best you can do. But as things progress, we need to collect more and more data. The reason this is so important, Andrew, is that a couple of weeks ago, um, a columnist on the Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens, he's a provocateur. You know, he he likes to say the unsayable and challenge, you know, the received wisdom. But he uh, published this very provocative article drawing on Gupta's study, which, as you know, hadn't actually been uh, peer-reviewed. It was a pre-print. And his March 28th column in the Mail on Sunday was headlined, There's Powerful ed Evidence, This Great Panic, he called it, Great Panic in capital G, capital P, is foolish, yet our freedom is still broken and our economy is crippled. Um, I just want to go on because the, the key passage in this article was where he went over testimony that uh, Professor Neil Ferguson had given before a House of Commons committee earlier that week, um, which uh, Peter Hitchens argued had largely been responsible for the original panic, as he puts it. And he went on to say he, meaning Ferguson, or others from Imperial College, have twice revised his terrifying prophecy. So his terrifying prophecy was the original um, uh, estimate from the model that unmitigated with no intervention, 500,000 Britons could die from COVID-19. Hitchens was saying that he's revised down from that first to fewer than 20,000 deaths. And then, um, you know, 10 days ago to 5,700 deaths from COVID in the UK. And, um, you know, he then pointed out that Ferguson had then said, well, actually, intensive care units could probably cope with that level of deaths. Uh, and according to Hitchens, he conceded a point that had been made by critics of the panic policy uh, that two thirds of people who die from coronavirus in the next nine months would most likely have died this year from other causes. Hitchens presented this all as a climb down and some tremendous change and revision of the figures. Is he right? I mean, I, th I think the UK could still experience over 100,000 deaths from from COVID. And uh, I think the United States could experience I mean, based on numbers I'm seeing, could experience 600,000 deaths. So. 600,000? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. Well, we have 3 million deaths a year typically, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a large number. So, I mean, I think it's too, it's too early to, to say. I mean, we were talking about herd immunity earlier. And, and, and one thing I, you know, have, that everyone has to, your listeners need to understand is that every strategy is a herd immunity strategy in some sense, because we're, unless there's a vaccine, you know, this this virus is not just going to vanish after after three weeks of of sort of quote unquote lockdown, three weeks of lockdown, four weeks of lockdown, five weeks of lockdown. And then it vanishes and we all come out into the sunshine again and the Premier League starts and finishes the season. That's not that's not going to happen. That's not how it works. There's still the virus out there. As soon as we come out of lockdown, we get a second wave. That's the reality. And so everyone has to get immune or or at least 60 to 70 percent of people have to get immune before this goes away. And because we've all been holed up in our houses, that's, we're not at that stage yet. I mean, unless Dr. Gupta is right. 
but we need to that's why we need to collect data and we need to collect data now i think it's very important what you're saying so um because a lot of people in the uk at the moment think we've been told today actually by uh, neil ferguson that based on the numbers now he expects the the deaths the peak to come in the next 7 to 12 days and that if after that peak we begin to see cases falling you know and we think oh we're on the downward curve that then um, that might be a time when politicians could make that decision to relax these measures. But if I inter- if I understand what you're saying correctly, that's not going to be the end of it, is it? Because there might be a time in a few weeks later where they start to rise again, or a few months later, and we're going to have to tighten the screws again. I believe so. I mean, I I, I just don't see how. I mean, you can close every international airport in in, in Great Britain. That will stem the flow of of. Uh, imported cases. It will also prevent any Briton who's currently abroad from returning home. And you can do a very close watch on, on declining numbers and take your chances. It's like putting out a forest fire. And if you haven't extinguished all the embers, then it can start again. I mean, it's not a question of Dr. Gupta being right and Neil Ferguson being wrong. I mean, we she might be half right and he may be half right. I mean, we, we need to collect the data. I mean, if, if 60% of the people uh, in the UK have antibodies, then I think you probably can talk about loosening the lockdown and starting the Premier League again. But but we need we need that number. And we need, we need that number from a scientific survey of the of the UK population, not from a biased survey of, of uh, you know, sampling only people at hospital or something. What listeners are going viral may not realise is that besides our fascination with influenza and all sorts of infectious diseases. Andrew and I share a passion for Arsenal Football Club. But Andrew, personally, I'm rather pleased that the Premier League shut down because <laughs> yeah. I don't think Arsenal were doing very well, were they? No, no. Well, I, but I mean, I mentioned it also because I know, you know, you know what a passion, you know, many of your countrymen have for, for football. But um... So I just want to just one last um, go on this thing because I think it's really important to nail certain canards, if I can put it that way. The, the thrust of Peter Hitchens' column was to make this, this claim through the way he was, I think, uh, perversely reading um, the imperial disease model, that Ferguson had fueled what Hitchens claimed was an unnecessary panic by quoting these astronomical figures of how many people might die without mitigation or suppression. Do you think that was fair? No. I mean, we're going to have a lot more de- deaths by the time this is over. And, you, you know, this could stretch into calendar year 2021. I mean, I, in the early days of the pandemic, I kept saying on, uh, I did an, uh, a radio appearance and, and, I, and I said, this is real. Like people, this is real. Like people kept sort of saying, well, what, you know, what is this? Uh-huh. I mean, and yeah, so just to interrupt, I mean, I had the same experience. I was going in and out of BBC radio studios and I kept on getting the feeling the penny hasn't dropped. And when I would walk in, this was and the same weekend that we saw this big outbreak in Lombardy and they said lockdown. I mean, I'm sure like, like me, you were an early adopter. I was already not shaking hands. I would walk into the studio and every producer would offer me his hand or her yeah. hand. Yeah, yeah. I had the experience of uh, saying, no, we're just doing elbow bumps now. or And people were still offering me their hand. Yeah, it's... it's uh... It, I mean, this is real. and But it took a long time. But, but Andrew, it took a long time for the penny to drop for lots of people, including people who should know better, whose job it is in government to advise. I, I agree. And um, I mean, people, you know, there, there were some estimates in the USA, um, you know, where I live, that there would be, um, you know, 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. And people were shocked. That, How could that possibly be? That's impossible. We're, we're very close to 10,000 deaths now. It hasn't even finished in New York. It hasn't even started in some other states. It's clear we're going to have at least 100,000 deaths by the time this winds its way through the U.S. population. I think I think we could have a, a multiple many times more than that. Uh, the you know the 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 U.S. South has a lot more t- tobacco smoking and other comorbidities. It has lower life expectancy. This is sort of well known and well understood. So it's going to be hit hard by the the COVID. The COVID is not this great equalizer. The COVID will hit. Harder, you know, the communities that always have more comorbidities will hit them harder. You know, pe- people are starting to wake up now. Like, well, if we're already at, you know, if we're already at ten thousand deaths and we're nowhere near the end of it, then a hundred thousand no longer looks so crazy. You know, and I think the UK has been going through some sort of parallel process here. And most of the deaths will be among old people. But I keep thinking that this is someone's um, grandparents. 
Right. So, so I mean, I, so I'm very much with you on that point because I have uh, my mother still alive. She lives in London and she's 88. Uh, and I was really struck. I've been really impressed by Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who whose social distancing measure is named after his mother, Matilda, who's 88. So I'm with him on that. I want to keep my mother safe from what is an existential threat. And what I, what I particularly dislike about these arguments that, well, your mother or somebody else's mother is going to die anyway in a few months. You know, I want to say to people, well, you know, how, how many extra months or years is enough for you? Is it, isn't there an absolute sanctity to life? And if we can keep someone alive for a month or, you know, a few weeks, isn't, isn't that desirable? Isn't that what a civilized society tries to do? I, I mean, there are two things i would say to that first of all under normal circumstances there's a there's a set of interventions that we normally do to keep people alive so you know under normal circumstances if if your mom had pneumonia she would receive a standard of care that would include mechanical ventilation if if she needed it and so what why are we all why is it all of a sudden okay to abandon that and the other thing is you know it's it's not the case that that all of these deaths would have occurred later later this calendar year and some of them would have occurred later this calendar year. Some of them would have occurred next year. Some of them would have occurred the year after that. And and as soon as you start pushing out a few years, you know, which is certainly the case, then we're talking about, you know, how many Christmases is it okay to, to for your grandchildren to to miss out on? And the other thing is that not all not all the deaths are among the very elderly. I mean, there have been deaths in Italy among people sixty five and under. That is unusual for for someone you know, in their, in their 60s, 50s, 40s, uh, 30s to die of, of pneumonia. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not exclusively among old people. On average, it's among old people. But, I mean, we respond to epidemics. That's, that's what we do here in, in public health. And I just don't understand the uh, putting uh, the economy above health is, seems to be, you know, not, not the way we, uh, not the way we, we, we operate. And the, back in the days of the Cold War, in the GDR, you know, you, you couldn't leave the country like very famously, right? The Berlin Wall had uh, had border guards, you know, with rifles and, and whatnot. But when you once you retired, you were allowed to emigrate to West Germany because you were no longer, you know, contributing to the to the economy. And so you're just you're just drawing a pension. You're just, uh, you know, costing society. So you could leave the GDR if you were old. You just couldn't if you were a young worker. So and, and we and and in the West, we 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 mocked that and we criticized it as being inhumane. And we said, you know, the GDR is this grotesque uh, abomination. And and so, you know, we, we say, well, you know, you, you know, old people are not just a drag on society. So why should we start saying that now? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, we mocked that very thought during the Cold War. I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that point. I think it's what um, distinguishes a civilized society from, from one. I think you just go, you, you end up going down the track of eugenics if you do anything else but that. Okay, so look, um, going viral, um, the first series, was um, sparked by the anniversary, the centenary of the Spanish flu, right, which fell in 2018, 2019. To me, one of the most uncanny things about this this pandemic is the timing of it. You know, almost a hundred years to the day from the end of the Spanish flu, we get COVID nineteen, which is certainly, I think, going to go down in history as maybe not quite as big as Spanish flu, but certainly of the same order on the same sort of scale globally. But let's really drill down into those numbers. I really want to turn to the comparisons with the Spanish flu and look at how it stacks up um, based on what we know at the moment and what the models are saying. So I think uh, I'm right in saying that in 1918-1919, 675,000 Americans died of Spanish flu. What would that be if you adjust the population growth? What's the equivalent figure today so we can get some comparison with COVID? Yeah, it would be about 1.8 million. The US population was around 100 million at that time. So the U.S. population has tripled, trebled in size since um, since 1918. So to inflate that number, it would have to it would, ha- it would actually be closer to to two million. So we're we're not going to see exactly that. Uh, yeah, not I, not that much. But this is still a significant, um, you know, significant significant event. I mean, it remains to be seen how many people what the mortality impact will be, but. 
I mean, there's not there's nothing like this has happened in anyone's lifetime, especially in terms of the lockdown. But but we're talking we're talking about the equivalent of two million deaths in a period where we have much better medical technology and strategies than we did in 1918. You know, when 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 we when we get a pneumonia uh, and uh, you know it's a viral pneumonia, but but what happens is bacteria in the lungs start to uh, go crazy as well because everything's just out of whack. And so, so we treat a lot of viral pneumonias if they get bad enough with antibiotics because we, we want to guard against secondary infection. And it's hard to know for sure, uh, but we, we do, but the, our best evidence, including some evidence from preserved lung samples from 1918, is that, is that bacterial co-infection was a big part of the story. So we have the ability now to treat bacterial pneumonia. So we have the ability, because we have antibiotics. And and those were invented, you know, of course after after the uh, starting in the 1930s. So we we should expect to do better now. That that's that's why the the estimates are only 100,000 Americans and not two or 300,000. Right, yeah? right. Although I think I think we'll do well. I, I mean, I think if I think we'll do well to escape with only 100,000. To be honest with you, I mean, in the USA, even with antibiotics and ventilators and everything. Correct, yeah. correct, yeah. correct. Because there've been. I mean, ten thousand so far, and we're and we're not even uh, close to being done with this thing. So yeah, but yes, uh, even with antibiotics, uh, because antibiotics are are treating like the most prominent comp- or one of the most prominent complications of this virus, but they're not treating the root cause. These are not antiviral drugs. They are, they're 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 killing the bacteria that sort of profit off of the disturbed physiology of the lungs during a viral infection. So. So yeah, it's 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 uncanny how it's like almost exactly on the hundredth anniversary of the nineteen eighteen flu. And yeah, it's 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 weird. And I mean, uh, worldwide, the estimates are fifty million deaths. So can I? Tell, does it feel weird for you too, Andrew? I mean, you studied this most. Of yeah, your life well, people too. keep ask. People keep saying that this is totally unexpected, and I, I don't I don't know about that, right? Like, because I mean. Well, I wrote I wrote a book saying that we, how many, how how often we've heard it's not uh, if there'll be a pandemic, but when we've been told that. No, that's right, and and I've I've said for a long time that the next pandemic won't be of flu, actually, because the flu pandemics over the course of the 20th century seem to be getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And the 2009 flu pandemic came, and it was very uh, uh, lenient in terms of mortality, and. You know, I've said like um, we're going to have another pandemic. It just probably won't be a flu. And you know, I would I would clarify that you know we'll have more flu pandemics, but because there'll be more novel strains of flu. But there's so much more mixing in the in the world population than there was in 1918. So we have all these cross immunities to the various strains of flu. So I thought, well, what's going to happen is you know we'll have a pandemic of something else, and you know it won't be flu because we've got all this cross immunity. But there'll be some other you know. Uh, virus that'll come along and that's exactly what's happened and and what's a big pity is that um you know after the 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 bird flu scares of the early 2000s people started to come up with pandemic plans there were national pandemic plans be like we need to be prepared for the bird flu and it's going to be 1918 all over again it's the bird flu and then 2009 happened and it was like this new strain of swine flu but the effects were very modest and so people thought, oh, well, we had all these pandemic plans on the shelf and we didn't even really need to use them during the pandemic because it kind of fizzled. And so I think after 2009, it just kind of lulled everyone to sleep. And then now we have a pandemic that's a real pandemic again. It's not flu, but it's very serious. And the pandemic plans haven't been updated. PPE, you know, stockpiles weren't, you know, made in in the in the quantity that they should have been, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think it's really disappointing but it's also just kind of, uh, you know, we have these pandemic plans, even if they weren't updated and even if they were just kind of on the shelf, we governments have pandemic plans. And to say this is totally unexpected is ridiculous because we have, why do we have a pandemic plan then if, if it's totally unexpected? I mean, we, we were expecting it. We just didn't do a, a good enough job. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the job of governments, uh, political leaders to prepare for the unexpected, right? It's called the precautionary principle. Right, exactly. I mean, you don't prepare for nuclear war by saying, well, it might never happen, so we don't need nuclear bunkers. Right. I just want to tell you, so we we passed the figures for America, looked at the equivalent uh, to Spanish flu there. But globally, so often the figure that's quoted for the global mortality in 1918 for Spanish flu was that it killed 
between 50 million to 100 million people globally. And I think adjusting for population growth, that's something like 140 million to 400 million equivalent today from Spanish flu, if Spanish flu were to come today and kill the same amount. How many do we think COVID might end up killing globally? And and I'm particularly interested in India in that, because India in 1918, it said 18 million people estimated, but it's so hard to get any kind of hold on what goes on in India. It's so vast. Well, that's right. And in, 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 in India in 1918 was also very different from India today in terms of it was a, mostly a, a British colony back then. And uh, the statistics and, in rural India weren't you know, very well kept. And it's just, it's impossible for anyone to, to know about exactly how many people died in India in 1918. And it's, India is going to be one of the big wild cards in, in predicting global mortality uh, in this pandemic. India, Sub-Saharan Africa are going to be sort of, the bit, are right now the big question marks. And also China, you know, China is another, you know, center of, a, of population. It has a billion people and China keeps good statistics, but there's not a lot of transparency in, in how they are released to the rest of the world. And so that's another sort of region in which, you know, we we don't really know, you know, exactly what's going on. If we assume that there's about a, so I did a very quick calculation. If we assume about 60% of the people in the world will get COVID, and we assume that there is a 2.5 a per thousand infection fatality rate, then we'll have about 11 million COVID deaths. Where? Globally? It, globally, globally, globally. And that'll be spread out over the next 24 months or so. Okay. And how, how many do you think uh, India would account for of that total? Well, about, about one-eighth of that. So, um, okay. So we could, we could say, uh, yeah, about, about 1.5 million in, in India deaths. 1.5 million. Well, it depends on the, uh, infection fatality rate. So I was saying 2.5 per thousand, you know, it could be less, it could be higher. It's just, we, that's why, again, why we need to, to collect the, uh, the Sierra survey data that will help us plan the next few months. It will also help, help refine the estimates of, uh, of how deadly this is. The case fatality rate is a little bit misleading because the case fatality rate is deaths divided by cases. And the infection fatality rate is deaths divided by infections. And, and so in theory, you may think, well, what's the difference between an infection and a case? But if you have an infection that's totally asymptomatic, then that would still count as an infection, but it doesn't count as a case. And so, and so you get more pessimistic numbers from the case fatality rate than you do from the infection fatality rate. And so the infection fatality rate, to, to get a good estimate of that, we need to know how many people are getting this and recovering with being none worse for the wear. So Dr. Uh, Professor Gupta's paper speaks to that. But Professor Gupta's paper is like a very optimistic take on, on what that could be. And we, we need to get the numbers so we, we don't have people saying, well, my model's better than your model. I mean, we've re we really need data. We need data. We need to, we need to test. So uh, Tedros Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization, has been banging, banging on about this since February. He's been saying, test, test, test. And some countries like Germany seem to have got their act together and ordered up tests and the chemicals you need. Uh, but the UK and, and, the C, uh, and the United States, which had this absolute debacle with the CDC testing kits, just didn't get, get the memo or something. Yeah, the, it's... I mean, I mean, a lot of the, what's been said about testing refers to testing um, for active infection, like we talked about earlier, so that... Not antibody, you know, I know these were... Yeah, not antibody yeah, testing. Yeah, so yeah. so that, that helps with the contact tracing. You know, and South Korea is sort of the poster child of doing it right. But, you know, part of the reason the South Koreans are so prepared is they have this noisy upstairs neighbor, North Korea. And so they're always expecting like a, a chemical, nuclear, or biological attack from North Korea. So they've got an infrastructure for de dealing with these kind of events. Uh, they've drilled for it. They've, they've got the PPE. They've got uh, the, ab the ability to scale up a, a test for a new pathogen quickly and reliably, you know, because they're, they're sort of living you know, downstairs from this noisy neighbor, as I said. So it's uh, South Korea did really well with the testing, but um, unfortunately, um, some other places, you know, sort of fell short. One thing that strikes me, though, is that these figures that are coming out, whether it's 500,000 possible deaths in the UK or 11 million globally, 
People can't conceive of these numbers. You, you, you can't. I mean, for me, the person who puts this bet best was was uh, Albert Camus, the French novelist who famously wrote *The Plague*, about an imaginary outbreak. And I'm quoting now from the text of *The Plague*. Figures floated across his memory, and he recalled that some thirty or so great plagues known to history had accounted for nearly a hundred million deaths. But what are a hundred million deaths? When one has served in a war, one hardly knows what a dead man is after a while. And since a dead man has no substance, unless one has actually seen him dead, a hundred million corpses broadcast through history are no more than a puff of smoke in the imagination. And I think that really captures how hard it is to grasp the scale of this existential threat. I think that's right. And, and um, I think a lot of people, you know, and who grew up in sort of after the war, uh, you know, down to today, just sort of feel like, well, we're living in the future now. You know, we have space suits and we have men on the moon and, and th- this is all like a thing of the past. And, uh, and the black death of the 14th century, you know, was proportionally more deadly uh, than, than anything we've talked about earlier on this pod. And, uh, the 1918 flu. There's very few people now. I mean, literally a handful of people worldwide who have any true memory of the 1918 flu. You know, I, I, th- I think people keep thinking, well, we're immune from this, these black death and Spanish flu. This is like in the history books and we're not immune. And this, and we're learning that uh, I, th- I think this will be more lenient than, than the Spanish flu and more lenient than the, than the 14th century black death in terms of total mortality impact. But the future, being, living in the future, living in, you know, it only, only gets us to more leniency. It doesn't get us out from having this happen at all. It's not, it's not that we're not going to experience it. It's just that we'll be able to mitigate it more. And so, you know, we're not, we're not exempt from this and, and it's happening. So to summarize, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know where we are in the tunnel. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I keep, I keep telling people, you know, that this is not the new normal in terms of, you know, being socially distanced and, and, and all that. I mean, th- th- we will return to life as we knew it. It is the new normal probably for longer than people w- want to talk about right now. Like we may be doing this lockdown for many more weeks, if not more months, which is tough for a lot of people. It's going to take a lot of discipline. And there's going to be, I realize there's going to be a lot of economic pain for a lot of people. But I mean, but I mean, we will go back to normal eventually. So I, I definitely think your, your listeners uh, need to understand that. I hope that's given you a perspective on the numbers. No sooner had we recorded the interview with Andrew, however, than another disease modeling group, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle, issued a further forecast. Based on the current rate of UK hospital admissions, Britain could see 66,000 deaths from COVID by August. That's about three times the level forecast by Imperial. One of the latest people to fall victim to the coronavirus is the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. He has just left intensive care at St Thomas's Hospital. To speed his recovery, I thought he might like to reflect on these lines that were written by a previous British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. It's from a poem Churchill wrote in 1890, when he was a schoolboy at Harrow, and it's inspired by the pandemic of Russian influenza that was then sweeping Europe. Oh, how shall I its deeds recount, or measure the untold amount of ills that it has done? On Moscow's fair and famous town, where fell the first Napoleon's crown, it made a direful swoop. The rich, the poor, the high, the low, alike the various symptoms know alike before it droop. Thank you for listening to episode one of The Covid Files. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to our series and recommend our podcast to your friends. We'd also love to hear your views on Covid and we would love for you to rate us. We're tweeting at hashtag going viral and our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been The Covid Files.